All right. Good morning, everybody. Grab a seat. We're going to get started. I was just complaining to Viren at the back that, once again, it looks like I'm destined to be the pastor of a church that never really starts on time. But there is this theological argument that there's kind of God's time for things to start, and that that kind of theological time is when everybody gets there. But if we did that, then this would be a total mess, and we live in a Western society, so we're still going to try to start at 10, especially for those who are online as well and tuning in at 10. Anyway, all rambling on. Um, Welcome, everybody, to uh, Martelloop Church. Today, we're going to continue our Old Testament Bible Stories series which if you've been tracking with us over the last few weeks, uh, has been almost divinely perfect in terms of what's happening in Ukraine and all of these old, ancient, uh, Old Testament Bible stories, um, making points and making connections to this uh, warring story in Europe. So we're going to continue on that. Uh, It's been good, and today uh, has its connections as well. As you can tell by the title of the message, the stories of Esther Vladimir Zelensky and the God who risked everything for others. So today, focusing on the story of Esther, which, as I said last week, is one of the most compelling narratives in the Bible. It's just an amazing story, just filled with this mysterious hand of God getting God's will done. But the problem preaching Esther, and none of you are preachers, I don't think, but a preacher would nod and go, it's, it's just, it's too long to preach a sermon on the whole story in one Sunday, because if you read the whole story, that would be your 25-minute message, and then you wouldn't have anything to say, and so people bust it up, but then you wreck the story by busting it up over two weeks. So trying to solve that this week, I thought, okay, I'm going to sit down and write Esther in a condensed Reader's Digest kind of version, but then looking around online, found this awesome video, which is nine minutes long, which has visuals and kind of tells the whole story of Esther and does a bit of theological framing for me. Um, And I thought, oh, that'll save me a lot of time. And it's a lot more eloquent in terms of communicating the story. So today's a little different. Um, I'll finish in just a sec. Dan will come up, lead us in a couple of songs. But then we're going to watch that nine-minute video, and then I will have a 15-minute response to that. So that's what's up for today, the story of Esther. All right, before we jump into all of that, as we always do, we'll start with a prayer and then a couple of songs. God, we thank you that our times are in your hands, as the psalmist wrote. And this time, uh, of course, the time this morning and this week in each and all of our lives was in your hands, but this time, here now gathered, is in your hands. And we pray that as we are now present here to one another, some have been here for a while, some new, um, that in our being present to others in a room, we'd somehow be more present and available and attentive to you. So meet us, God of the story of Esther, God of the, all those stories that providentially fill the Bible, uh, the God of, uh, who came in Christ. Be with us here and move by your spirit, we pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. The book already, of Esther, it's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. 
The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. The main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in this story. And then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. Now this is a curious book in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once. Which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? But this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way. It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. Let's just dive into the story. The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquet feasts that last a total of 187 days, and it's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. On the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. She refuses, and so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now, right here from the beginning, God's not mentioned anywhere, but this all seems providentially ordered. What is it that God's up to? You have to keep reading. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice. A die is called pur in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther is going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. So in a key statement, Mordecai, he's confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her amazing words, if I perish, I perish. 
Now, in what unfolds, we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet, and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the following day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai. But all of a sudden, the story pivots. It just so happens that night, the king, he can't sleep. And he has the royal chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading. And he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution. And the king in that moment orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Now this moment in the story, it's a pivot for the whole book. It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. Watch how this works. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive and Esther informs the king that first of all, she's Jewish. And second, that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her and to murder Mordecai, who saved his life, and to murder all of the Jews. Now the king's had a lot to drink. So when he hears this news, he goes into yet one more drunken rage, and he orders that Haman be impaled on the very stake he made for Mordecai. It's ironic and a grisly way for Haman to go. Haman's execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews. So the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter-decree. On the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed, the 13th of Adar, now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold banquets and feasts to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. Eventually, the decreed day comes, and the Jews triumph over their enemies. First, they destroy Haman's family, and then any other Persian officials who had joined in Haman's plot. And then on a second day, they get permission to destroy any who plotted against them throughout the entire kingdom. This results in joy and celebration as the Jews are rescued from annihilation. The story then tells about how Esther and Mordecai established by decree this annual two-day feast of Purim to commemorate their deliverance from destruction. And the name of the feast comes from Haman's dice. Remember, Purim. The book concludes with a short epilogue as Mordecai is elevated to second in command in the kingdom and we are told now of his royal greatness and splendor as the Jews thrive in exile. Now, step back. Notice how this whole story has been designed. The story was full of moments of ironic reversal, but we can now see the whole story is structured as an ironic reversal, right down to the details. So the king's splendor and feasts and decrees are mirrored by Mordecai's splendor and feasts and decrees at the end. Esther and Mordecai, they first saved the king, but now in the end, they save all of the Jews. Then you have Haman's elevation and edicts and banquet that gets reversed by Mordecai's elevation and edict and banquet. And then at the center, you have Esther and Mordecai's planning scenes, and then Esther's two banquets that act as a frame around the greatest moment of reversal in the whole story, Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation. 
beautiful. Another fascinating feature of this book is the moral ambiguity of the characters. There's a lot of drinking and anger and sex and murder, of which Mordecai and Esther are a part, not to mention their violation of many commands in the Torah, like marrying Gentiles or eating impure foods. And so the story's not putting Mordecai and Esther forward as moral example as if it endorses all of their behavior. But they are put forward as models of trust and hope when things get really bad. And so the book of Esther comes back to that question with which we begin, why God is not mentioned. The message of this book seems to be that when God seems absent, when his people are in exile, when they're unfaithful to the Torah, does this mean that God is done with Israel? Has God abandoned his promises? And the book of Esther says, no. It invites us to see that God can and does work in the real mess and moral ambiguity of human history, and he uses the faithfulness of even morally compromised people to accomplish his purposes. And so the book of Esther asks us to be willing to trust God's providence even when we can't see it working, and to hope that no matter how bad things get, God is committed to redeeming his world. And that's what the book of Esther is all about. So great story, right? God's will gets done even when God's name is not formally evoked or mentioned. God is a God who moves behind the scenes in that world then and there and in our world here and now. God saves people in often unseen ways, mysteriously shaping and guiding history with coincidences, and then it just so happens. And God holds it all in the moral messiness. So God holds, as much as God held that bit of history, God holds your history, whatever your story is. And our history as a little church trying to get going in spite of a pandemic And humanity's history, as it now plays out in such a troubling way in our world. And that, in my mind, is a very comforting thought. And I love how the narrator set up that video, noting that the fact of God not being mentioned is in fact a positive in that it's an invitation to look for God's activity, to lean in, to crane your neck, to think a little bit more discerningly and deeply about what's going on. And there are signs of it everywhere, what's going on. When I read that or heard that the first time, I thought, well, isn't that exactly what we're trying to do and be as a church, right? To engage God everywhere, you need to believe that God is at work everywhere, visibly and most often invisibly and in unseen and unknown or unknowing ways in and through people and history. So the book of Esther, just in its it being there, is an affirmation that God moves in unnamed ways. If, if you're telling people about our church and that we preach about God and science and art and culture and all the stuff that we're doing, and you want to offer a theological proof, say, look at the book of Esther. God is moving in all kinds of ways, unnamed ways everywhere, taking it all somewhere, eventually, good. 
um, holding back evil. That's a big theological idea called uh, part of common grace, that God holds back the evil that could be a lot worse in our world were God not holding back evil. And like right now, God is moving in ways holding back evil that we probably haven't, couldn't even fully imagine. Because were God to stop that, our worst case scenarios and what might have happened over these past few weeks would have happened already. And the book of Esther affirms that God uses all kinds of ordinary, messed up, morally ambiguous people to do his will. Whether they know it, that God is working through them, like Esther and Mordecai did, or whether they don't, like the king. And even Haman didn't know that his evil plot would be used to save in much longer ways and lasting ways the Jewish people. And what's cool about this story is that God works through beauty pageants. And the good gift of sex, which our video went light on, but Esther pleased the king when she won that beauty pageant. And through timing and coincidence, and if, if all of that is true, that God moves even in those places, that means that every story and all of our places are God's story, places where God is at work. And even as the book of Esther allows us to see God's providence from an, a higher narrative alt altitude, from a God's eye view, looking down on this bigger story, I think one day we will all be able to see the narrative wisdom and providence in our stories when we look down on them from that altitude, which, which might be in a retrospective place. Looking back on your life, you've done this. You go, oh, that was lousy. But now I see, you, you kind of worked that for a really good thing, God, and brought me to a, a, a kind of beautiful place. And we just celebrated Edward's birthday yesterday and two days ago. And, uh, you know, I, I tweeted, I said, how is it that the hardest thing in your life becomes the, one of the best things in your life? And you're not spiritualizing it or glossing it. It's true. <laughs> this retrospective wisdom on the providence of God, the wisdom of God. So if that is the point that Esther makes, that God moves in mysterious providential ways through history and our histories, what does that mean for our history now today? And now we're going to move out of the personal into, yeah, this, what's been filling our news feeds, right? And I mean, could it be that this old, millennia-old Bible story about the ironic reversal of an evil leader's plan to destroy a people could offer hope to us today? And then I answer and go, well, surely 
this is not the end for the Ukrainian people. Because God works through former beauty pageant winners. God's that kind of God. God's the kind of God who would work through a former Ukrainian comedian and entertainer, if that's what it took, to play out a plan that would save a people. God is a God who takes quick-witted tongues used for one particular purpose. <laughs> Maybe this is autobiographical too, but in the case of Zelensky, and then uses them for a totally different, renewed, world-changing, arguably, purpose. God took a caustic tongue and, and, and transformed it into a powerful global communication tool. The whole world is listening to that man's voice. A voice that at least so far, and this is being written up in the New York Times and the Washington Post and media everywhere, is strong enough to stand up to the biggest propaganda machine that human history has ever known. Which makes me ask, and not a morally perfect character, not a morally perfect country, but makes me ask, could Volodymyr Zelensky be here precisely for such a time as this? Remember Mordecai's words to Esther. This is the expanded version. He said, for if you remain silent at this time, Esther, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this in God's greater story. Historian Modris Eckstein's once wrote that individuals and events achieve symbolic power not just because of their own inherent features, but because they intersect with broader historical forces. So we always think Churchill, all these big names in history, well, it was them. And he argues, as a, a world-leading historian, now deceased, but that, that no, it, yeah, it is them, but it's also the moment and all that's happened around them into which their life fits and into which their voice is a, is a key protagonist voice for that time, a time such as that. Which then makes me think that God is the ultimate broad historical force and shaper of history. God is holding everything in Ukraine, everything here, everything there right now, even as we speak in such time as this. And for all we know, we might be in a story that is exactly where God wants it to be, where God might take an evil plot, a very godless idea and worldview and way of treating your neighbor and, and stopping it turning it around so that it's the one that ends up ceasing to exist.
the worldview. Which makes me wonder if this is the story we're living right now. And if these are the times that we're in. And then makes me wonder if God's question through Mordecai to Esther, and surely God's question, articulated or not, and heard from God or not, to Volodymyr Zelensky, if, it, if it's not our question right now, as a NATO member country, faced with this horror today. I mean, right now, right? We, are, we have been being called to risk more and more and more and more in order to save a people. So how is Esther's question not my question and our question and our politicians and Western world countries' questions right now? I mean, Esther did what she did, but surely... She had to think, maybe, and vacillated maybe a bit after making that decision, as I'm sure Zelensky did for a time. This may cost me my life, and it may still. And now we're all vacillating. Yeah, we'll support him, but not too much, because we don't want to get dragged in too deeply. And For if you remain silent at this time, God says... Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family's father's family will perish, and who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. What would Jesus do in such a time as this when he saw his neighbor country being completely unfairly destroyed? caveat. I'm not saying, you know, we don't do all the prudent things we're doing as a Western world. Avoid a world war <laughs> wherever possible. But there does come a point where we need to choose, and I really do think we've chosen already, haven't we, in supplying the weapons we have. We are at war in this war. Such a time as this. This is the question. Our is NATO's response to what's happening now in Ukraine, are, are we going to be the way that God saves a people? And again, like the story from two Old Testament stories ago, what if this perilous way of stepping into that risky place is God's way of calling us into a more saved place? Because Esther did it, and then that happened. And Esther went, whoa. Like, are we missing out on, whoa, God? By being cowards. Globally, internationally, in your life, where you're being called to risk a bit more for your faith. I mean, think about who we follow in this community. What would Jesus do? He would lay down his life 
even though he didn't deserve it at all, he would willingly choose to sacrifice self for the sake of the other. That is the Christian way forward. He stepped into history. He took on human history in a real body. He was and is history. The one in and through whom all things were made and all things are now held together. All things. He's the epitome of a life lived before God. And I'm preaching at me here. So selfless acts for the sake of others should be no-brainers for a person of faith who follows that Jesus. And if I perish, I perish. Because to go, evidently in the mind of God and in the mind of Christ, to go on living when others are unfairly suffering is to, is to not live at all for God. So Jesus risked everything. And Jesus knew that he really wasn't. Because in the eternal story, the greater risk is not acting and stepping into what God calls you to. Death has no sting anymore. Jesus knew, as I mentioned, quoted earlier in this service, that his times were in God's hands. That verse comes from Psalm 31. I went back and read the whole psalm this week, a long one. I won't read it all, but I'm going to read a portion of it. But I wondered in reading the psalm if Esther might have read those very words in the original Hebrew on the night she was struggling or in the moment she was struggling to choose. And Jesus, growing up in a Jewish family, he would have memorized all those psalms. So surely he did know these words from Psalm 31. And then speculating, maybe even this Jewish Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, knows or would remember an echo of the truth of these words. These words. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. And you could just hear it echoing from young hearts and parental hearts and bomb shelters and people whose feet are just, they're dying because of this long journey they've had to take. Those who've buried their dead, those who are suffering. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. For I hear many whispering terror on every side. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. And my times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. Let the wicked be put to shame and be silent in the realm of the dead. Let their lying lips be silenced. 
For with pride and contempt, they speak arrogantly against the righteous. And yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. So love the Lord, all his faithful people. The Lord preserves those who are true to him. But the proud he pays back in full with ironic reversal after ironic reversal after ironic reversal. So be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Join me in a prayer. Thank you, God, for the hope that we can feel and hold on to, um, stand on if, if we can see it clearly enough, um, be pulled into the future by the hope that you give us in this knowledge of your behind-the-scenes, history-holding, providential hand. Um, a hand in Old Testament stories like this uh, that point to a saving that centuries later would come in and through the person of Jesus. Stories in our culture, in our world, our own lives, that when we've looked back on them, we've seen just amazing coincidences and good things happen and at just the right time something played out so that it didn't get worse, so that a saving could happen. Yet, God, it is messy, and the saving isn't always on this side of eternity. And life and war and people's hearts and our hearts can be inexplicable at times. So may the healing start here in each of us, and may your healing, saving power continue to be at work through all that is playing out in our world today. And may the people who are suffering most, in Ukraine in particular, know the presence of God and be able to one day, in one moment, stand there and look back and see a power at work and see your face uh, in the light of your countenance Know your grace and love, we pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. couple of announcements. Uh, as we note every week, uh, we're thankful for your support and uh, giving to the church. A lot of people give online. Uh, some give at church here on Sunday morning. And there's a, a oak box there on the back table with a slot in the top. If that's something you'd like to do, uh, we're thankful. We are uh, yeah, doing this new thing, right? And you all know about the budget meeting and what we're doing. And this Friday night here in this room, 
Um, we're going to be having our next service, but it's going to be part of this regional denominational meeting called Classes. So there'll be people from Winnipeg, Edmonton, different places gathered here for that uh, church business meeting. But in the middle of that meeting, we're going to do a church service starting at 7 on Friday night here, or live-streamed. Um, and in that, it's going to be a lot of the normal elements, but also we're going to let some of the visitors come up and say, hey, welcome, Pastor John, as though I'm new and haven't been here for over two years. Because um, <laughs> we never did that live. We did it all via Zoom, right? It was officially ordained over Zoom, uh, which was good because I could say to some of the parts that I you know, may have wanted to go soft on, I did, I, it popped out on the Zoom call. Did I agree to that? Um, no, that's a joke. You can laugh nervously at that. Anyway, we're going to have people just say, hey, welcome, and we're going to have a, just a prayer time to kind of officially commemorate um, this happening and me taking this job here. And uh, then the next day, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of denominational things, but also our proposal to that classes for some grant and loan funding. So, yeah, 75K, which in our minds buys us a year and a half more, right? And when you're starting a new church... Um, it takes two or three years, right? And the pandemic did eat away at those first two years. Um, might still be eating away. Will people ever come back to church? Uh, jury's out. We'll see. I have faith. We have faith. Um, but that's going to happen on Saturday, uh, that proposal officially uh, uh, dealt with. So we're hoping that that'll be, po that'll be positive. And yeah, if that's not the way that uh, more financial support comes in for our church, I'm sure God has another way to get it done. Okay, so that's it for announcements. Um, next service, Friday at 7 o'clock. Normally that would be an online thing, week two of our monthly pods. And then the following week is Easter, so that's going to be different. We're going to have Good Friday at 10 a.m. on Friday, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday as a live service. That's when we would normally do an event, but you don't cancel Easter. So we're doing those two live services. So it's like four live services in a row. Imagine that. Okay, we're going to finish with one more song after uh, this blessing. So uh, stand for the blessing, please. And uh, yeah. This is how it works for me. I, you watch the news with uh, looking and listening for God's providential voice and whispers in the world, in your world, in the world, in this world, like, it really is true, right? So what would life be were you to attend to and engage God in those places? Beautiful. Go with this blessing. May the grace of God, our Heavenly Father, the wellspring of all creation, and the love and the world-shaping power of His Son, Jesus Christ, the world-holding power of Christ, and the creative uh, curiosity, um, nudging, um, world-energizing presence of the Holy Spirit be with, abide, be with and abide with you all. Amen. <laughs>